Hi, my name is Brian, and I'm the lead pastor at Grand Valley Church. We hope that this message helps you explore faith and connect with Jesus. Today we are beginning a new series called Act Justly, and we're going to be talking about justice for four weeks. And the reason we're talking about justice is that justice is not just a Christian topic. Justice is something that affects all of humanity. So whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, maybe someone invited you to check out our online services. First off, I want to thank you for being here and joining with us. But I also hope that this is something that you can learn about justice, because justice is something that affects all of us. It affects our relationships, it affects the choices we make, how we live, and how our choices affect others. And so I'm approaching justice from a faith perspective as a follower of Jesus, because I am a pastor, and my faith has shaped my understanding of justice and how it has grown and evolved as I've sought to follow Jesus with my life. And so one of the things that I've been learning in this, and this again is something that applies to all of us, is that justice is not an ideological concept. Justice is an action that shows love and honor to others. Justice is something that we do and something we live out. Even when we aren't intending to, our actions still reveal justice or injustice to those around us. And so we're going to be diving into this, and I hope that it makes us think about our personal responsibility, but also our communal responsibility, the responsibility that we have as citizens of a country, as people on this earth whose choices and actions affect other people on this earth. I hope it makes us think about our responsibility in those areas. And so today, we are going to begin by taking a historical approach and looking at a time period in the Old Testament because our Old Testament contains a historical example of an attempt to create a just society that would be a witness for God to the whole world. And so we're going to begin this way by spending some time in Genesis and mostly in Exodus today as we look at ancient Israel's history, because that history is part of the bigger story that God has been telling throughout time. And it's part of our church history, even though we're talking about a time period that began well over 3,000 years ago. And so in order to set this up and frame our conversation and get us into Exodus, I'm starting a new segment in our online service. This may be the last time I try this, but it's called Brian Oversimplifies Ancient History in 60 Seconds. And so my goal for the next 60 seconds is I'm going to take us from Genesis 12 all the way to Exodus 19, and that's where we're going to pause and slow down and look at what's happening. All right, are you ready? I'm not sure I am, but here we go. So God says to Abram, leave your home, leave your family, you're going to have many descendants, and through you, all the families on earth will be blessed. And so Abram has a son named Isaac. Isaac has two sons. The younger son steals the inheritance from the older son. The youngest son goes on, has many sons. His youngest son is his favorite, massive favorite. The younger son has dreams that his older brothers are all going to bow down to him. They fake his death, sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt, running a household, gets accused of something he didn't do, ends up in jail. He interprets dreams. The dude he interprets dreams for forgets about him, but then Pharaoh has some dreams and they call him up out of jail, bring him before Pharaoh, and he reveals what these dreams mean. There's going to be seven years of plenty, seven years of famine, so prepare for it. Joseph then goes from the jail to second in command of all of Egypt. They're the only place with grains. Later on, his brothers all come to him, don't know it's him, to buy grain, and Long story short, they end up moving all into Egypt. 430 years later, their descendants are a large group. They're enslaved by Egypt. They cry out, Moses comes, burning bush, Red Sea, plagues, Red Sea, and I'm over time. But there we go. 
we got from Genesis 12 to Exodus 19 in 64 seconds. All right, so Moses has this group of people. He's led them out of Egypt. They've ended up in the wilderness, and there's a question. How do you organize a large group of people who are meant to represent God to the world when that group of people have only known slavery? They have no concept for how to make decisions, how to govern, how to lead themselves, even how to be a cohesive people group. All they know is slavery. Now they have their freedom as they've entered the wilderness. They're going to land that God has promised them, and they've got to figure it out. So what do you do? And so what happens is Moses leads the people to Mount Sinai, and what God does is he gives them the law. And when he gives them the law, it's not just a book of rules. He's actually giving them their entire worship, governance, and judicial systems all at once when he gives them the law. He gives them the foundation for their society in this oral tradition of the law that later on gets written down, and we have it now as part of our Old Testament scriptures called the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. But really, we're focusing on Exodus, and then later on, their oral tradition gets codified and written down into what we have now as the book of Leviticus. And so, Exodus 19, verses 1 and 2, it says this, Exactly two months after the Israelites left Egypt, they arrived in the wilderness of Sinai. After breaking camp at Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp there at the base of Mount Sinai. Then Moses climbs the mountain to appear before God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob, announce it to the descendants of Israel. And so God is forming a new covenant here with his people at this time, and he's giving Moses their fabric, their foundation, their constitution, you could call it that, of how they will exist as a people group. And so here's the message that God gives. He says, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now that last little line should give us a hint. God is talking about this relationally. I brought you to myself. And then God says, now if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth, for all the earth belongs to me. And you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. And so God is setting the terms of this covenant here. And he's saying, if you will obey me and keep this, you will receive this status as being God's treasured people. He says, a kingdom of priests. And that phrase is telling because a priest is an intermediary, someone who steps between God and someone else to help that relationship happen. And so when God calls them a kingdom of priests, he is telling the Israelites that they are to be the mediator between God and the world to reveal God to the world. And then there's this last part. He says, my holy nation. Now, we might think of holy in terms of being, you know, righteous and upright and justice, but the term holy actually just means set apart. He says, you will be a nation that is set apart. You will live differently than the nations that surround you. And in that living differently, that's how you will be the kingdom of priests. And so the way of life for the ancient Israelites under the law was to be different and set apart from the world around them. And this is how they would reveal God to the world. And so large portions of their law was about just their living practices as God's people. But this law and this way of life had this purpose of revealing God to the world, that their relationship with the law was, in a sense, their leadership. 
They were not to be like the nations around them where they would settle that would have kings where kings just made a decree and decided that's the way they would go. The purpose for the ancient Israelites was for them to have the law as their guidance, as their ruler of sorts, and that they would go back to the law and they would interpret for the time period they're in and make decisions that way. In that way, God would be leading his people. And so the rest of the world, the kings that surrounded them, they live in a sense of law and justice where might makes right. And what that means is if you have the power, you set the rules. And so whichever king had the most men in their army, the best weapons and technology of the, at this time, Iron Age, they were the ones who had the might to decide what was right. But the Israelites were to be different. They have a covenant They have a covenantal relationship with God. And so the next chapter of Exodus, Exodus 20, is the Ten Commandments. They form the basis, the kind of the baseline foundation. And then after that, God gives Moses kind of more in detailed instructions that go beyond the first ten. And these commandments, when we look at them, we may think they seem so archaic and ancient. And yes, they are ancient. But for the time period, they started to bring this concept of restorative justice into the Israelites. And what that means is that if you caused a loss to someone else, even if that was by accident, you were responsible to reimburse and restore that person to the state they were in before that loss. And so an example of that is Exodus 22, verse 6. It says, If you are burning thorn bushes and the fire gets out of control and spreads into another person's field, destroying the sheaves or the uncut grain or the whole crop, the one who started the fire must pay for the lost crop. Now, the other thing that this does is this also limits retribution. This means that if your neighbor was burning some thorn bushes and that fire came through and swept through your field, you couldn't go and steal livestock from him as your own sense of justice. No, there was a limit to what you could exact on your neighbor for the transgression that even accidentally affected you. And so this law really was a step forward for its time period. And we're going to look at another couple examples of this. And one of the things we have to understand when we talk about this time period is that slavery was part of their economic realities. And this is not to justify slavery or to endorse it in any way, but we're going to take a moment and look at one of the limits that the law put on slaves. In Exodus 21, 26 and 27 says, If a man hits his male or female slave in the eye and the eye is blinded, he must let the slave go free to compensate for the eye. And same, if they knock out a tooth of their male or female slave, they must let the slave go free to compensate for the tooth. This is a radical concept for the ancient world at this time, that even slaves, someone who was an indentured servant or really considered to be the property of someone else, had some level of rights. And furthermore, if we go on, the law wasn't just internal, it also talked about external. And it says this in Exodus twenty-two twenty-one. it says, you must not mistreat or oppress foreigners in any way. Remember, you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. And so their law didn't just govern internally, it also governed how they would interact with their neighbors, with other nations, with other foreigners, even someone living in their land as a foreigner, they were responsible to them. They couldn't just say, you're not one of us, therefore you have no rights, because the law gave rights even to foreigners. 
And the last example we're going to look at is this one where it says, you must not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you are called to testify in a dispute, do not be swayed by the crowd to twist justice. Right here in the law, it's saying that justice, doing what is right, is more important than public opinion. And we may think sometimes that public opinion defines what is right, but what this is saying is, no, no, justice can be defined in a way that is deeper than public opinion. And again, this is just a sampling of some of the laws and where we may again look at this and say, man, that is archaic. That is not how we want to live. We don't live in a patriarchal society, and that's a good thing. We don't live in a society right now where we can legally own people, and that is a good thing. Even though slavery is still pervasive in our world, we are taking steps as humanity to lessen that, and we need to keep working on that. That is a justice issue. But here's what I want us to remember is that at the time it was given, the law of the ancient Israelites was a step in the right direction on a longer journey towards justice for everyone. This is starting a long time ago and moving forward slowly. We can look at this law. We can look at Leviticus and say, that's not enough. And that is a true assessment of it. But here's what happens when a society is governed by written law. And we see this even today in our own society. If laws are the only source of justice, we can either drift towards legalism or we find loopholes to escape the law and perpetuate injustice. And we can see this, you know, if, if this is what the letter of the law is, we can look for loopholes and we can find ways to skirt around it and get our own way. But that is, in fact, perpetuating injustice when we either swing to legalism or we swing to just looking for loopholes. And so what we learn from this is that external laws are not enough to create a just society. But before we move on and we fast forward about a thousand and so years, there's a modern term that I want to look back and apply to ancient Israel. And so to borrow this modern term, ancient Israel did not have a separation of church and state. Now, again, the church didn't exist then. I'm taking that term and applying it back to them. Because for the ancient Israelites, religion and nationality, their legal system, everything that went with it, were completely enmeshed. And what that eventually led to is that the Israelites treated other nationalities with contempt and injustice. Even though they had a law saying that you cannot treat foreigners with disrespect. You must be fair in your dealings with them. It still happened. And so what happens is that the law becomes so entrenched and people who were outside of the covenant started to be viewed as less than. And so the world became very divided for the ancient Israelites. There was the Israelites and the Gentiles. And a Gentile was anyone who was outside of the law. And it became a divided inside versus outside, us versus them world. And so, what can motivate us to justice? What can work better than just an external list of laws? And again, we need laws. They're an important part of a fair and just society. But when it comes to a personal responsibility of justice, what actually helps? And so I want to fast forward us to the first century. And because in the first century, something happened. God himself put on flesh and stepped into the world. And Jesus came to fulfill the law. Those were his own words he used to describe it. And to create a new relational covenant between God and all of humanity. 
And so Jesus comes, he fulfills the law, and he sets a new covenant that has a radically higher standard of justice for followers of Jesus to live in. This higher standard, Jesus talked about many times, and we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that include an account of Jesus' teachings and the way he lived. And we're going to move to Luke. And in Luke, there's an encounter that Jesus has with a religious leader that leads into a story that we're going to read together. And so, one day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? Now, right away, we should understand something going on. This religious leader is not asking a question on a search for knowledge. He is asking a question to try and trap Jesus because Jesus really ticked off the religious leaders of the day because he did not tolerate and accept the way that they had swung to legalism and loopholes. And even when Jesus asks his response, he answers a question with a question. He says, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? He's actually narrowing in, well, what's your interpretation of the law that you're following? And so the man answers. He says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. He gives the answer. And Jesus responds to him, right, do this and you will live. He affirms the man's answer. And so the man wanted to justify his actions. That's the way Luke records the story. He says he wants to justify his actions. So he says, and who is my neighbor? Now, when we see that question, we should see him looking for a loophole. He's looking for a way to define who is in, who's my neighbor, and who is out that I don't have to love. Who, is, who can I reject showing love and justice toward? And so Jesus Well, Jesus does his thing that he often does, and he tells a story. And he tells a story because in a story, you can say something to someone and hopefully get around their defenses a little and make them realize something that they don't want to realize. And so Jesus replies with a story, and I'm just going to read these verses through exactly as Luke records it. Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. Now, the fact that the man is naked, he's been stripped of his clothes, means that his status as a Jewish man is on display. This is known to the people walking down. It says, by chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road, and he passed by. Then a temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man, and if his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I am here. So Jesus tells a story. The priest and the temple assistant look the other, other way and keep on walking, and the despised Samaritan stops and goes over and above, showing mercy and compassion to this beaten-up Jewish man. And so Jesus tells this story, he looks at this religious leader, and he says to him, now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? He's putting the guy on the spot, he's 
putting the responsibility of deciding who was the one who showed a neighborly care for the beaten up, robbed Jewish man. And so the man, the religious leader replies, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus responds, he says, yes, now go and do the same. And I want us to recognize something there, is that Jews and Samaritans hated each other. And they have historical reasons that go back centuries why they hated each other, but really it just comes down to ethnocentrism. They hated each other because of their history and things that happened centuries earlier that they in their current day could not change the past. But they were all choosing to continue this anger and hatred towards one another. And in fact, the religious leader, if you notice in his response, he doesn't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. Because at that time period, they would only refer to Samaritans using racially charged slurs. And so when he says the one who showed him mercy, he is dodging even saying the word Samaritan. And so Jesus, in this parable, he does something that would have ticked off and angered that religious leader because Jesus humanized the Samaritans by making this Samaritan man the hero of the parable and by making him the example of what true justice is when it's motivated by love. Because remember, Jesus told this parable in response to the who should I love, who's my neighbor question of the religious leader. Now, the Samaritan is the hero, despite the two people that walked by, the priest and the temple assistant, people that were viewed within Jewish society as being the most just, the most righteous, the most godlike in their behavior, the ones that were exemplifying what devotion to God looked like. They were the ones who crossed to the other side of the road and passed on by, ignoring the man lying in the ditch. And so Jesus is confronting them with this parable. He is confronting them to say that loving your neighbor means everyone. It doesn't just mean the people who look like you, who think like you, who believe the same things as you. Loving your neighbor means showing love and care to everyone. This is the standard of justice that Jesus talks about and what he calls his followers to. And we should look at that and say, yes, that is a high standard that we often fall short of, that we often are not able to do. And it's still something, though, to strive for and do. See, that religious leader, he knew the law and he just looked for a loophole. He just wanted a way out so that he could keep his racist tendencies. But instead, Jesus confronts him. Jesus recognizes that the law of Moses was a step forward, but again, it was not enough to provide justice for those who are outside of ancient Israel. And so that's why when I read this parable, I see Jesus giving commentary on the law of Moses, saying it was not enough. It was not enough to create a fair and just society that treated its neighbors, that treated foreigners, that treated orphans, that treated widows, that treated the people that were looked down upon in their society. It was not enough to create a just society for everyone. And so then that leaves us with a question. Where do we, living in 2021, where do we start to seek justice for others? What's our starting point? Where do we begin And I think we can learn something from Jesus' response to that religious leader because he put it back on the religious leader. 
and he, he asks the religious leaders to say, what's your starting point? And the guy responds. He says, well, this is what the law of Moses says. But then he looks for the loophole, and Jesus again says, well, who was the one who acted neighborly to the man who was beaten up? And so I think that we also have to start by looking at ourselves. We have to start by looking at our own actions. Because injustice thrives when we dehumanize and we disregard people who have experiences that are different from our own. And so we actually need to look at our own experiences, recognize how our experiences shape us differently than people around us. How, and as we do that, we recognize that other people have different experiences of justice than we do. But we first have to start by looking inwards. And so I think that we start, and I'm going to provide three questions that I think are a starting point on this journey of seeking justice. We can start by asking ourselves this. We can start by saying, who have I reduced to a label or a stereotype? Is there a people group that I stereotype, that I say because they are part of this group, they will always act that way? Have I ever made those statements even just internally in my mind of saying, who have I reduced then next? Who have I dismissed or dehumanized? And as you ask these questions, this might make you really uncomfortable as you realize thoughts that you have held. And I hope that you're willing to sit in the uncomfortable tension that these questions and these thoughts will bring up in us. Because then it leads us to this third question. Can I begin to see them how God sees them? Can I begin to see these people that I may have previously dehumanized and begin to see them as part of God's creation, as someone who Jesus refers to as is your neighbor, and a neighbor that we are commanded to love our neighbors as ourselves? Because love creates a higher standard than a written law. Love creates the standard that Jesus gave us and the standard by which we will be known as his followers to the world. And so these three questions are difficult questions to sit and wrestle with. And I hope that you will sit and wrestle with them this week. But I want to end our time together by going to one of Jesus's earlier teachings, to a time period when he had a great crowd gathered, and Jesus gave a long form of teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in Matthew 5, is where it begins. And he begins his teaching with this list of statements And one of the statements that he begins, he says this. He says, God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses, which is often termed, talks about God gives himself to, God gives his presence to those who hunger and thirst for justice. Those who yearn for justice to happen. Those who are seeking and pursuing justice justice. And he says, for they will be satisfied. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about justice and when I think about the state of our world 2,000 years after Jesus gave this teaching, I don't feel satisfied. I don't feel satisfied yet that we have made justice a reality. We may have justice for some, but we don't have justice for all. And so this fact that Jesus gave this this command and promise in one of saying, God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. 
If we're not satisfied yet, that means there is still more justice that needs to come into the fabric of our society, into ourselves and our own actions and our own dealings with others. And so we still have a long way to go. And I think there is movement happening. I think that there is the rumblings and the beginning of a fairer and more just society forming both within the church and beyond the church. But there are still obstacles in the way. There is still opposition towards justice that needs to be broken down. And that always starts in ourselves. And so, for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus, will we confront injustice and seek justice the way that Jesus did? Because that is the much higher standard that Jesus gave us. Well beyond the law of Moses and the the historical example of ancient Israel. But how do we, living today, confront injustice and seek justice. And so we're going to continue exploring this topic for the next couple weeks. Next week, we're going to talk about systems and leaders and what to do when, uh, when we don't see justice in those areas. And so again, I hope you'll join us next Sunday. And may God give you wisdom as you examine yourselves, as we all look inwards and say, what do we need to do to seek justice? May God grant us wisdom to see and a desire to see that change become reality. So I hope you have a great Sunday and see you online next Sunday. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you know of someone that would benefit from hearing the message you just listened to, would you do us a favor and share this podcast with them? And while you're at it, please consider subscribing to be the first to hear when our podcast is updated. If you want to join in on Sundays, our services are streaming online at 11 a.m. Central. To find out more about our church, go to mygrandvalley.ca and you can also find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for My Grand Valley. Thanks for listening.